0: Tim Dahlberg has been covering boxing since the late 70s. If there's any writer that knows Vegas and its reputation as a fight town, it's Tim. His love of boxing goes way back.
1: I would listen to Ali uh, fighting in the 60s on the car radio or on the radio at home. And you know, I, I could imagine watching those fights, and then I'd watch, you know, the Friday night fights on on TV.
0: But that's really all you got. But nothing compares to seeing a fight live. The fighters themselves are celebrities. It's being in the presence of greatness.
1: I had an uncle come into town when Ali was training at the Stardust Hotel in the early '70s, and he took me to the training session. I got to see Muhammad Ali, which, you know, he was always a hero of mine uh, growing up. And in
0: 1980, on a freelance assignment for the Associated Press, Tim got to see Muhammad Ali again.
1: I was a young reporter at the time, and uh, I was uh, working for the local newspaper, the Las Vegas Review-Journal. In my spare time, I was working for the Associated Press.
0: It's October. And the Caesars Palace arena is packed. No one had seen anything like this before. It looks like something you'd see in the Olympics. Tens of thousands of people piled up high, staring down at this lit up square at the very bottom.
1: And they held the fight in the parking lot, outside, the lights of the strip glittering, the hotel lit up behind it, a huge American flag on the hotel. It's just magical, all the celebrities at ringside. That started the outdoor fights of the 80s, which are the iconic fights that, that people remember from Las Vegas and from Caesars Palace.
0: And in that square stood Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes in their respective boxing ring corners.
1: I was able to be around that, that scene where Ali came in and he had lost all this weight. Uh, turns out he had been taking a, a thyroid drug to do it. But... He'd lost all this weight and he had a a mustache and he he called himself Dark Gable. And it was just the entire Ali experience, uh, really for the last time.
0: The year prior, Ali had announced his retirement. So this fight was a surprise. Kind of like when Tom Brady rose from retirement after barely two months. Anyway, everyone knew watching Ali fight again could be legendary.
1: So I was able to be around that and just the the mystique of Ali, you know, Joe Lewis is there for it, every celebrity imaginable. If you had a name of any sort and you weren't at Caesar's Palace the night of that fight, then uh, you went straight back to the B-list because that was an A-list crowd if you've ever seen it. Just a magical night. It was was a terrible performance by Ali. He got beat up pretty bad, so it wasn't a good fight, but it it kicked off the fights at Caesars Palace.
0: Tim would go on to cover boxing for decades.
1: You would actually have a phone at ringside, and you would just be on the line to New York, and you would dictate uh, the story of the fight right after the fight ended which uh, was great training for journalism, actually, because it forced you to recall every bit of what you'd just seen. and But to try to keep it in any sort of logical order for a writer, it's very difficult.
0: Covering boxing since the late 70s, Tim saw how Las Vegas built up its reputation as a boxing city that could keep up with the likes of New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Vegas would ultimately surpass those great boxing centers, and really surpass every other city in the world. And that's what this episode is all about. How the city of Las Vegas transformed a fight into a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. How the fighters leveraged their personas in the ring to make some of the biggest prizes ever seen in fighting. And how casinos like Caesars paved the way for Las Vegas to become the mecca of boxing. I'm Brent Holmes. This is Spectacle Las Vegas.
2: Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No.
0: When we think about boxing now, we think about online streaming, pay-per-view, and HBO. But when boxing got started in Las Vegas, broadcasting wasn't a thing yet. It wasn't until the 60s when Vegas really blew the lid off the sport.
1: Well, at the time, Las Vegas was just a small, dusty little town. Uh, So they really had nothing until the Rotunda was built.
0: The Rotunda is in the convention center, built in 1959, and it can seat six thousand three hundred people, perfect for boxing.
1: In nineteen sixty, they went looking uh, for some fights, and you know they were doing the uh, NBC Friday night fights, and they got some great middleweight fights, and they would do them at the convention center. You know, people are tuning in around the nation, and they'd see that here's a fight from Las
0: Vegas. All of a sudden, Las Vegas is on everyone's television screen.
1: Las Vegas was a very exotic place at the time. Uh, people knew about Las Vegas, they knew about the reputation, but very few of them had ever been to Las Vegas.
0: There wasn't just the spectacle of the fight itself. There was the spectacle of Vegas. It became the place to see a match, on screen or in person. All the big name fighters were there. Sonny Liston, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali.
1: Muhammad Ali. First fought there in 1965 at the uh, in the rotunda at the convention center. He fought Floyd Patterson
0: before Las Vegas. The big fight cities were New York, Chicago, maybe L.A.
1: Las Vegas gradually started attracting more of the major fights on a regular basis and surpassed uh, those cities as the mecca for boxing.
0: But there was one tiny problem: the rotunda. It wasn't on the Strip.
1: Caesar's Palace started boxing out on
0: the strip. In the early days, pre-arena fights were in the pavilion, which were actually old tennis courts. If you look at photos from the time, there's a classic one that typically makes the rounds. It's 1977. The fighters that day are Ken Norton and Jimmy Young, but the camera isn't positioned on them. It's positioned on the crowd. And by golly, it's a crowd.
1: Down at the end, there's uh, Bill Cosby, there's Ali, and next to Ali, to his left in that photo, actually, is the president of Caesar's Palace. At the time, his name was Harry Wald.
0: Harry Wald was instrumental in getting big fights to Vegas and making the town a boxing capital.
1: You know, Sinatra's there with his bodyguards behind him. Uh, to Jack Nicholson's in the photo. If you were anyone at this time, you
0: wanted to be in this photo. As you can tell, it was all about the atmosphere. The pavilion wasn't fancy, but the energy, the excitement, everyone packed in like sardines, no hierarchy to the seating.
1: To get all these people crowded in together, it was very democratic, actually. There was no special VIP sections or or anything. I mean, the VIP sat close to the ring, but uh, you know, fans were around them, and that was the pavilion of Caesar's Palace. I mean, you can almost smell the cigar smoke and the, Caesar's woman perfume and the sweat and and the blood at ringside.
0: Tim's career gave him VIP access to some of the most influential boxing fights, fights we've only seen on TV, in magazines, or famous photos. He's one of those people who is like, oh, Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali, I was there. Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, I saw Floyd's paycheck.
1: (laughs) He climbs down out of the ring and another uh, boxing writer and I, we we decided to go over and uh, take a look at that check. And so (laughs) we go over there and Floyd shows us a check. And sure enough, it says $100 million.
0: You can't talk about Vegas boxing without talking about Floyd Mayweather, or that 2015 fight. It was billed as the fight of the century. And because of that, it sold a lot of tickets. Before the fight even happened, it was projected to be the most watched fight of all time smashing pay-per-view records. HBO said it had more pre-orders than any event in the network's history. That fight became less about the fight. It became a symbol of boxing as an insanely lucrative sport.
1: They ran out of space to put the private jets at the airport. There were so many of them coming in for this fight. It's just, there's something magical about Las Vegas and boxing and the atmosphere, and people know they're gonna come here, they're gonna go to the casino bar, Everybody else at the bar is going to be talking about the fight. They're going to go play craps or something. People will be talking about the fight. They're going to go to dinner. People are going to be talking about the fight. They're going to go to a show. People are going to be talking about the fight. It's just an immersive experience. And it's really unlike
0: any other. That's what makes Vegas different. When you go to New York, you have options. You could go check out a Broadway show, a Yankee game, see stand-up at the Comedy Cellar. But in Vegas, during a fight weekend, everyone in town knows why you're there. There's a camaraderie, this energy. It's like being at one long tailgate. But, you know, a tailgate with slot machines and Celine Dion. It was purely coincidental that Tim, who grew up listening to Ali on the car radio, would cover boxing at such an important point in the sports history.
1: What a time to be in Vegas during the times of some of the greatest spectacles ever and and some of the, the stories that, You know, people tell about these events. You know, I was ringside when Evander Holyfield got his ear bitten off by Mike Tyson. And uh, I was ringside when the fan man flew into the ring at Caesar's Palace in a a motorized uh, paraglider. And uh, during the Riddick Bowe-Evander Holyfield heavyweight title fight, and Riddick Bowe's people, uh, they were equipped with the cell phones of the day, which were those Motorola's which looked like bricks. Uh, weighed about 10 pounds each. And when this guy comes gliding in during the seventh round in, into Bo's corner, they thought uh, he was after a Riddick Bo, and so they started beating him over the head with these old cell phones.
0: Hold up, a paraglider? Someone got
1: beat up with a cell phone? Some of the spectacles that, then the unusual things that have, have happened over the years, you know, they would only happen in boxing. It's, it's just such a individual sport, and, and boxers, they're the greatest people to write about because they all have stories of some sort.
0: More on that, next. Boxers are characters. They're larger than life. If you had to name one professional boxer, i bet money it's Mike Tyson, a.k.a. Iron Mike. Tim was ringside during Tyson's rematch with Evander Holyfield in the 90s, which, if you're like me, you were glued to the TV. I mean, Tyson ripping off Holyfield's ear? It was huge. Even now, you type Evander Holyfield's name into Google, the third word that comes up is ear. But there are some aspects of Tyson's story I forgot, like what a huge deal he was when he came onto the scene. He was only 20 years old when he won the heavyweight title.
1: He started out uh, fighting on the East Coast because he's a New York fighter and built his record up. But he won the heavyweight title in 1986 in Las Vegas. He fought Trevor Burbick at what was then the Hilton Hotel, which is now the Westgate. And uh, he knocked Trevor Burbick out in the second round.
0: Tim was there in the Hilton lobby after the fight.
1: Here comes Mike Tyson out of the elevator walking down to uh, greet fans in the casino and he's got this brand new title belt around his waist and he's wearing these uh, these overalls with with no shirt and this big belt and a, a big grin and he was the youngest heavyweight champion ever and you know you just wondered how is this going to go down the road what's going to happen to him
0: tyson was building a name for himself and had a style He'd hold his hands in front of his face in a defensive peek a position. He'd crouch down before unleashing an explosion of sequential punches on his opponent. His signature move was a right hook to the torso, followed by an uppercut straight through to the chin. Ouch! Great
2: jab by Mike Tyson. Twenty years old, Mike Tyson on his way to becoming one of the youngest heavyweight champions.
0: But soon, his personal life started to creep into the ring. His wife, Robin Givens, was asking for a divorce. She would later cite domestic violence. And then, in 1991, Tyson was arrested for raping then-18-year-old Desiree Washington. Here's writer Alex Papademus. In 1992,
2: Mike Tyson is convicted of raping Desiree Washington, who's a Miss Black America contestant who goes up to his room, and there are obviously
0: very different stories.
2: Her story and his story are very different.
0: That's right. He was convicted. In a lot of celebrity trials, you sometimes assume a miscarriage of justice, that the celebrity defendant will have the resources to get off. But in this
2: case, he is convicted, and he does time in jail. He's sentenced to six years, and he gets out after three.
0: Alex did a profile on Tyson for GQ a couple of years back,
2: if you read Mike Tyson's autobiography, he throws himself under the bus on almost every page. Everything that happens, it's a litany of things that he takes responsibility for. He feels like everything bad that's happened to him basically is his fault, either through you know mistakes or addiction or any of those things. He does not blame anybody else. The one thing that he has never owned is this thing that happened with Desiree
0: Washington. Tyson emerged from prison in March 1995, having served less than three years. And he escaped seemingly unscathed by the media. If anything, his release was celebrated. That Evander Holyfield fight? It was part of a series of fights between the two billed as Tyson's comeback. And the first fight against Holyfield, everyone was excited for it. You're going to hear Alex and Tim trade off telling this story. Now that's the fight that's known as, it's just billed as
2: finally, because everybody has been waiting to see Tyson fight Holyfield, he's been fighting these other
0: guys. And people weren't just excited to see Tyson in the ring again, they were also excited to see Holyfield.
1: The odds were so against Evander Holyfield in that fight, which was at the MGM Grand Garden, that people were worried uh, because he had had a heart condition, been diagnosed at the uh, Mayo Clinic with some sort of heart condition, people were worried that he was going to die in the ring, that Tyson was going to kill him and uh, the odds were like 25 to one
0: in Tyson's favor. In that first fight, Holyfield headbutts him. It ends up opening a cut above Tyson's eye.
2: And he never really recovers. I think there's a second headbutt, which is also ruled accidental. The fight is stopped in the 11th round.
0: Tyson loses. That first fight was November of 96. Then they held the rematch in June of 97
1: each of them got 30 million dollars for the rematch which was
2: pretty much unheard of money at the time it's known as the sound in the fury on the poster although it obviously becomes known for other reasons after that second round holyfield accidentally headbutts him again opens the cut and in the third round they're in this clinch and tyson bites holyfield's ear nobody even realizes what has happened in that moment at first holyfield is obviously really pissed off i think he's like literally hopping mad at that moment but like you know it's up close and there's a it's a referee watching trying to see what's happening it it, it could be accidental it could happen uh they don't stop the fight you know but he's bitten off this piece of the man's ear for some
1: reason they allowed it to continue and Tyson bit off another chunk of his ear. Well, that was a little too much and they had to stop it at that point. And of course then all hell broke loose in the
2: ring and there's almost a riot in the ring. So obviously now it's premeditated and Tyson will say this later. He says, I wanted to kill him. That was what it was. If you watch the replay, you can see him make the choice that he's going to do this thing. They stop the fight. Uh, Tyson tries to come at Holyfield in his corner. Like Holyfield's in his corner with the trainer. He tries to come at him. Security comes into the ring. The cops, I think, get involved, like the big actual cops as opposed to the MGM cops. The MGM, it shuts down for the night. And there's just this this kind of madness. Um, it doesn't close again until COVID. Like, that's how unprecedented this is.
0: Tim was at that fight, and being ringside, whoo, he saw some things.
1: One of the workers at the MGM was in the ring, uh, and they sent him in to clean up and look for the And he brought out the piece of the ear and showed it to us. We were at ringside. He showed it to us since he went by. And uh, I guess they tried to reattach it to Amanda's ear, but it really didn't work out too well.
0: Tyson's license was suspended. He had psych tests, was medicated. But just a year later, in October 98, he would be reinstated. Alex again.
2: He's a guest star at WrestleMania the next year. And it's the beginning, I think, of there being no real consequences, and he's back boxing
0: by the, you know, the end of the decade. City of Second Chances? In many ways, Tyson is the poster boy for that. Nobody has sort of
2: reinvented themselves more times and in more unlikely ways than Tyson.
0: He skirted the drama of the rematch. If anything, he's dug in. He's in on the joke. Tyson was so big, his name hung around hip-hop circles. In 98, the rapper Cannabis featured Mike Tyson in a song. At the time, Cannabis was in a feud with LL Cool J. It sounds like Mike Tyson is leaving a voicemail at the top of the song. In the voice that we know, the Tyson voice, he's you know, saying, come
2: for blood. He says, your main objective out here, this is him talking to Cannabis, is to
0: do nothing but eat, eat, eat MCs for lunch, breakfast, he starts to become this character, appearing in movies, on TV, in ads.
2: He fights Anna Faris in Scary Movie 4. It's a uh, million-dollar baby parody within that movie. And he's dressed as a woman, and it's like, shes it's Anna Faris is gonna fight a woman, so it's like, okay, it's gonna be another woman, but it's, but it's Mike Tyson. And he bites the rep's ear off in that scene and he bites the ref's other ear off. And then eventually like the end of that scene is him just sort of like lunging into the crowd and
0: like there's a pile of ears on the ground. I mean, he made a cameo in The Hangover where he is a caricature of himself. Someone who is scary, eccentric, who has pet tigers.
2: When they wind up at Mike's mansion, it's as if they've sort of descended to another level of hell and here is Mike Tyson waiting for them there. Or another, at least they've descended to
0: another level of madness. Just recently, he announced his cannabis company would make edibles in the shape of Evander Holyfield's ear. Yes, you heard that right. Apparently, they're friends now. I know. It's wild. It becomes incorporated into
2: this kind of afterlife persona that he has, where what we know about Tyson and what we know about Tyson that is maybe unseemly and you know even frightening in some sense, gets incorporated into the persona that he accepts and having put on him as kind of the price of
0: re-entry into pop culture. He's in on the joke, but there's still questions that surround him. The idea of reinvention, it's complicated. How do people who do bad things pay their penance to society? Why do we decide to forget the wrongdoings of some but not of others? Even though he's quick to own his misdeeds, he still claims he was innocent in the case of Desiree Washington.
2: Vegas is about reinvention, and Tyson kind of illustrates like the limits and the complications of reinvention, that you can only come back so much, and you can only come back as the thing that you were and the thing that inspired people so much.
0: When should we give someone a second chance? And when should Vegas? And in Vegas, it's not just the boxing ring that seems to be a source of reinvention. Next time on Spectacle, we'll dive into the history of the Las Vegas residency, how it's evolved from a kitschy stage for washed up lounge lizards to arena-sized shows for international superstars like Lo or Bruno Mars. Many say there's one woman to thank for pop music success in Sin City.
1: Celine Dion kind of stuck her big Canadian flag in the ground in 2003 and it just, her show just did so well and and went on for so long and became such a hallmark, you know, such a
2: part of the Mount Rushmore of Vegas entertainment.
0: We'll go from Vegas residency roots with Elvis to Celine and Britney. You won't want to miss it. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. It was produced by Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Sue. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you by Ear Cartilage. Mmm, crunchy.